guided by the Spirit of God, Solomon, through his writing here, wants us to take a good, serious look at life. And he's doing that over and over again in this book. He wants us to see what life is like for people without the Lord living under the sun. And he wants us to take a hard look at how we view life and how we live our lives. And that's always relevant, is it not? So let's give thanks and let's get started. Turn in Ecclesiastes, the third chapter. We'll finish the third chapter today and we'll pick it up. Well, we're going to pick it up in verse 11, which is transition. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege that is ours to be together. We have no lease on this life. We thank you for the privilege to read, hear, think, study, and respond in worship and obedience and faith to your word. And I ask that that would be the result of this day, and it would all um, be done with a desire to bring you glory. Uh, we have focused the last few weeks on this uh, wonder of Isaiah and viewing the holiness of God. And uh, today, as we come to your word, uh, which is holy because it's from you, that we would be in a state of eagerness and reverence and desire to listen and respond in a way that honors you today, worships you this day. Uh, bless our time together, and we thank you for our time in Christ's name. Everybody said? Yep, and we caught last week there's a time for what? Everything, right? Under the sun, 1 through verse 10, and then we got to verse 11 that is somewhat transitional for our moving into 12 through verse 22 uh, for today. Let me read verse 11 just by way of getting us into the next text and think about for a moment. He, that is God, has made everything appropriate, some versions say beautiful, in its time. And he's also set eternity in their hearts, and we can say even in our hearts, being in the image of God. Yet, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. In verses 1 through verse 11 of this context of chapter 3, we are reminded of God's perfect timing in everything. He has a perfect timetable in everything, in his world and in our lives. Can you say amen to that? You believe that, don't you? That he is sovereign and that he is uh, working according to his, <clears throat> his uh, sovereign plan in all things. Remember Proverbs 16.9, though, says, man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. So God's way, God's working, uh, is, is working in us and in his world, are uh, inscrutable. And that is the idea, you know that word, it, it conveys the idea of being on, on, uh, beyond our ability to totally and fully grasp 
all that he is doing. And when we think about that, we turn in your Bible to Isaiah 55. You know this passage, but let's just be reminded of the fact of how Isaiah says this to us about our world, our lives, and our God. Isaiah 55, verse... I want to start in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. Good news. And he will have compassion on him, and to our God he will abundantly pardon. Pardon. For my thoughts, here we are, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. He's made everything appropriate, everything beautiful, according to his perfect timetable. His ways are beyond us in many ways, and he is infinite in his wisdom in all that God does and in his goodness. And as God has set eternity in our hearts as image bearers, Ability with the ability for you and I, unique, made in his image, to reason, to think, and to comprehend truth, right? Part of our uniqueness as image bearers. And part of that then, having said eternity in our hearts, is we want to know everything God is doing all the time and everything that he's bringing into our lives. But we can't and we don't. As one person has said, we, we, we want to access the big picture. And at the end of verse 11, he says, which God has, will not, man will not find out, find the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Vance Havner always had a way of saying things, oop, I think I went backwards. Nope. Can we get to the beginning there? I, I may have messed up. It would be a... Va- hey, there we go. <laughs> God writes over some of our days with yet to be explained. Is that a good way of saying it, right? The reality of his knowing all things and not revealing all to us but all that we need to know about who he is and how worthy he is of our, of our trust. Uh, See if I can come to the next quote, wrong way, without messing up. D. Gibson, in his excellent little book, I think it's called Looking at Life Backwards. Do I have the title right? says, all grown-ups are like children when it comes to our own lives and God's ordering of them. He's the one who sees the end from the beginning and is so able to make everything beautiful in its time. Because God lives forever and I will not, I can experience the several different times of my life, knowing they are part of a bigger picture that I cannot see, but which is visible to a good and wise God who sees the whole and sees it as beautiful. And that involves what we would call good and what we would call not as good. That would cause uh, all the pleasant things of life and all the reality of some of the pain of life. And as we reminded ourselves this past Saturday as men, in the uh, section of 
of uh, Jerry Bridges' book, Pain in Our Lives is Never Without Purpose. And Romans 8.28 is still in your Bible. Is it still in your Bible? Say amen to that. So all things he's working, all things good to those that know God, that those that love him. And part of that purpose is verse 29, to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Everything is time. Set eternity in hearts. We want to know certain things, and Solomon certainly wants to understand some things that he doesn't see and know. And God has worked in all of this, in his plan. Um, And we are in the context of time in the midst of this. Okay, so now Solomon is still in an observation mode in verses 12 through verse 22. Still in a mode of looking at life under the sun. And he's telling us in verses 12 through 22 what he knows and what he sees. Look with me at verse 12. I know. See that? Look at verse 14. I know. Down in verse 16. Furthermore, I have seen. So he's in that observation mode here again of things that he observes, he sees in the world. Some that he is is telling us from the perspective of above the sun, but a lot of it below the sun and just by as an investigator of life and some conclusions that he makes. Swindoll makes an interesting statement here. He says this, as Solomon contemplates life, um, and times, there's times as he does this, he brings God into the picture. He does that in verses 12 and 13 and helps us then gain wisdom about life And at other times, he seems to almost become cynical. And if you only live life under the sun, you can become cynical about life itself, and many do. So what does does he tell us when he's looking then, by observation, about life as we live it within the context of the time that God gives us. Well, look at verses 12 and 13. It's going to be familiar because it's a continual theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is the gift of God. So in verses 12 and 13, we've heard that before, he knows life is a gift, and it is a gift that can be enjoyed. One writer says, in light of the context, this, he says, don't forfeit enjoyment in life because of what you can't understand. It still remains as a good gift from the hand of God to be enjoyed. And notice, he says, to rejoice and do good. Do good. Things go better when you do good than when you do evil. And you back up, see that in the context. And moreover, verse 13, every man who eats and drinks sees good in his labor. Now remember, he starts the, the whole book with what does that labor ultimately gain me in the end? But he's saying, now, I just want to remind you again, life is a gift. And I don't think he's singing, be happy, don't worry. Remember that one? Aren't you thankful we don't have to hear it anymore, Right? But I don't think he's saying that. I think what he is saying, I know what he is saying, is simply realize life is a gift and there is joy and satisfaction to be obtained living it, living your life and living it his way, his way. 
Remember back in verse 24 and 25, there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This is also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? And for the Christian then, for the Christian, for the believer, it's not only a gift to be lived, but it is a gift to be lived each day for his glory. Can everybody in here quote Romans 12, 1 and 2? Can you quote Romans 12, 1 and 2? You ought to know that one. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies what? We have an opportunity. We only have so much time each day to present ourselves, our bodies, our lives as living sacrifices to him. So we have the tremendous advantage of knowing the Lord, knowing God, knowing Christ, that not only is this day a gift to us, but it's an opportunity for us to be pleasing to him. And we can then take advantage of that by his grace to the best of our abilities. Gibson again says in his helpful little book, satisfaction comes when you know you are a time-bound creature and God is the eternal creator. Satisfaction lodges in my heart when I accept the boundaries of my create, create, creaturely existence and accept the seasons of my life as coming from his good and his wise hands. And if you see life as a gift, then you are a thankful person. And I gave you an assignment a couple of weeks ago. Some of you mentioned that to consider. If you haven't done it yet, can I bring the challenge again today to you? To take a 30-day period. One week, okay, but I challenge you to take a 30-day period. And in a 30-day period, take and write down three things that you're thankful for tonight, tomorrow morning, each day, three things you're thankful for, and don't repeat the same three things again. And at the end of the 30 days, it'll just blow your mind when you look at the list and think, man, all of the blessings, all of the things that I... And it's amazing how it changes our attitude in the midst of things that are going on with us. So I want to present that Pepsi challenge to you again today because we are called to be a thankful people, are we not? And we do that when we realize life is a gift. Enough said, it's obvious, is it not? All right, look at verses 14 and 15. He also knows that God rules over his world. I want you to think with me right now. If he rules over his world, what is the attribute that we covered? Starts with an S about God. He is what? He is sovereign. Verses 14 and 15, do you see that here? I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. Wow. That which has been already, that which, was, will be, uh, that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. But nothing. No, notice again, verse, verse 14. Everything will remain forever. Nothing to add. There is nothing to take from it. So he knows God rules, God is sovereign, and he is working at the end of verse 14. He's working that men should fear him. And he's going to tell us one of the main reasons that's so in the next verses and at the very end of the book. 
And I'll just give you a heads up about that. He is saying one of the main reasons he'll tell us next that he is working that men should fear him is the fact that God has ordained that all men one day will stand before him. There is, uh, it's appointed unto man once to die after this what? The judgment. So there is his, is his sovereignty in working all things, and yet working that we would fear him. Uh, going through the practice of godliness, I haven't for a number, I I've years ago went through this, but I'm going through this with someone again recently, and I think that uh, Jerry Bridges, the practice of godliness, I think that his first chapter on what it means to be devoted to God is worth the price of the book. And one of the things that he says is this, that the evidence in my life and your life that I fear God is measured by the degree that I'm devoted to him in living for him. And he's got a, a great quote here that I thought was worthy of to mention to you if I am able to, to find it. John Murray said, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. Let me repeat that. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. And then he makes this statement concerning fear and being devoted to God. Fear of God, being devoted to God. He said, it's impossible to be devoted to God if our heart is not filled with the fear of God. It is the profound sense of veneration and honor, reverence and awe, that draws forth from our hearts the worship and adoration that characterizes true devotion to God. The reverent, godly Christian sees God first in his transcendent glory, majesty, and holiness before he sees him in love and mercy and grace. Great statement, I thought, about with reference to the fear of God. All right, I've got another assignment for you, all right? Everybody say, I'm excited right now. Okay, I got another assignment for you. We see in verse 14, God sovereignly, but he's working that men would what? That men would, and women, would fear him. Okay, here's your assignment. And remember this, in the example of the model of our Lord Jesus Christ, oftentimes Jesus would teach and get people's attention by answering their question with another question. And I want you to do that. And I want you to do that in this manner. Here's your assignment, okay? People in your life that God brings into your life all the time, and the more that you demonstrate that you care about people, the more that people will talk to you and be open with you. And whether we're talking about friends or family and, and, and a neighbor or coworker or old acquaintance or a new acquaintance, people have stuff going on in their lives all the time. Amen? They got things going all the time. Sometimes they've got real chaos going on in their lives. And in the midst of that, sometimes you ask how they're doing, sometimes you don't, and people just tell you. But if you show an interest in people and a care for people, they might relate to you all that's taking place and all the burdens or all the circumstances that they're facing. And they tell that to you, and I'm asking you to ask them a question. And that you might ask them the question, how do you think God is working in your life. What do you think he's up to? 
What do you think God is doing with all the things that you just related to me? Isn't that a good question to ask? Because we know that if they're unbelievers, God is working that they might come to what? The end of verse 14. That they might fear him. That they might know him. You have answers to that question. Now, they might be somebody who is a believer. And they're walking with the Lord. And they have all this going on. And you can encourage them, right? You can give them encouragement and give them hope. And say, I'll be praying for you. And, and God's got your life on display. You must be... You must be somebody who's going to be used where you're at or whatever else. Or maybe it's somebody who they dump all that on you and, and you say, yeah, I, what do you think God's doing? And, and you can say to them, God's working all the time, isn't he? And, and you might discover they profess the Lord, but they're not living for him. And you can help them see whom the Lord loves, he what? He chastens. Or you have the opportunity to go over the gospel. This is what we're here for, is it not? And so as we have opportunities like that and people know that we care about them and they convey these things to us, we ask them the question then, what do you think God is up to? Because he's always working. You just tell them that he's always working. And you will have opportunities for the gospel or for encouragement or for discipleship, whatever else, with people. Is that not a good assignment? Amen? That means we remember what we're here for, too. And we're here to point people to the Lord and point people to, to the, be able to give them the gospel. Solomon is not encouraging pagan hedonism when he says, enjoy life here. But rather, the practice of enjoying God's gift is the fruit of one's labor, no matter how difficult life may be. Life appears to be transitory, but whatever God does is forever. So when we live for him and let him have his way, in our lives, he will, because he's in control. Life is meaningful and manageable. Instead of complaining about what we don't have, let's enjoy what we do have and thank God for it. And I think in, from verse 14 and 15, Achan's sum, Achan sums it up for us helpfully. Solomon is saying that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added or subtracted from God's work in the world. Seems obvious from the text. God's plan cannot be changed, and he has a specific purpose for his plan and even the frustration we feel. It has caused people to revere him. This is the key to Ecclesiastes. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and it is the key to alleviating the frustrations of life trapped between time in this cursed and existence and eternity. This cursed existence and eternity. There's no use trying to change the past, the present, or the future. God uses all of this tension, frustration, and burden to drive us to him. It is a sign of God's goodness. He knows there is no such thing as happiness apart from him, and he wants us to learn that. I know that everything God does will remain forever. Nothing to add to it. There is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him, know him, be devoted to him. And it's certainly the beginning of wisdom in our lives, that which has been already and that which, will, which has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. So he knows life's a gift of God and can be enjoyed. Secondly, he knows God runs his world and is sovereign and that men should fear him. Men should come to, to know him. Then in verse 16 and 17, 
he sees the problem in this world, and it is a running theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and it is the reality of injustice, the problem of injustice in our world. Though God is working, the same time in the world, and even part of his plan, is the, the reality of human depravity taking place in our world. Furthermore, verse 16, let's see if you can see that with me. I've seen under the sun, under the sun that the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. And I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every man and for every deed is there. So what does he see in verse 16 under the sun? In the place of justice, there is wickedness. Place of righteousness, there is the same. Evil, wickedness, unrighteousness in our world. The problem of injustice. A few weeks ago, if I could just mention again, a few weeks ago, we, in the, for the men's breakfast, watched uh, Dr. MacArthur's, listened to his sermon, entitled, Why Does God Allow So Much Suffering and Evil? That's the title, Why Does God Allow So Much Suffering and Evil in This World? He preached that sermon, preached that message at Ligonier about eight to ten years ago. I would highly recommend you to listen to that sermon because what Solomon is talking about in 16 and 17, the wickedness or evil in our world relates to the fact of human depravity and the fall, right? We know that. We understand that. So he observes the reality of human depravity. Our Burns calls this problem of injustice in the world. He calls it man's inhumanity to man. Man's inhumanity to man. God requires justice, but man is corrupt at every level, and we see that corruption. Solomon speaks of it here in Ecclesiastes. He talks a great deal of it with reference to Proverbs, and that injustice takes place at every level of human existence in government and in courts and in business and in, on personal basis with, with individuals. And yet the Bible says this. This, these, this is uh, um, the queen of Sheba's words to Solomon. And when he was king, blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on his throne as king for the Lord your God. Because your God loved Israel, established them forever. There he made you king over them to do justice and to do righteous, to do righteousness. You know that Micah 6, 8, isn't this a great passage? You have this one marked, don't you, in your Bible? And he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And yet, Solomon looks around and he sees the injustice via the wickedness that takes place in our world. Now, there's none of that today. Aren't we thankful for that, right? No corruption in the government or injustice in our legal system or, or, or what, whatever else. We, we don't see that today. We see that since the fall, do we not? 
And I wanted to ask you this morning, do you get all passionate, passionate and fired up about politics? You get all bent out of shape about that, what's going on in our world and whatever. Now, we're ad- admonished in, in, our, in the Word of God to pray for those in authority over us, and we should care about our country and our world. I get all of that. So we have that obligation and that responsibility uh, with reference to to do justice and to pray for that. But when we get all bent out of shape about that, we can easily lose our focus. And thinking about that and reading about that this week reminded me, and I hate to do this because it shows my age, okay? But I remember when we were going to have and had a president that was open, very open about his uh, commitment to Christ and about his being truly a born-again man. And uh, that was uh, Jimmy Carter. How many remember? Jimmy Carter was very open. And I I believe the man loves the Lord. So I don't don't want to badmouth him in any way, shape, or form. I think he's 99. I don't know if he's going to make 100 because you hear that he's just in some ongoing care right now, but maybe he'll make, make a hundred. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. But what I remember was, I remember it seemed in the evangelical world and talking about other Christians, it was kind of like the kingdom is coming in now because we've got somebody who's going to be a president who is a Christian. And listen, every person who loves the Lord, who's willing to to be in government or as an authority over those others, praise God for them. Amen? But we live in reality, in a real world. We understand what life is under the sun, and corruption at every level rules because man at his inner being is corrupt. We understand that. Amen? So when we get our noses bent out of shape about what's going on in the world, may it cause us to do what we were reminded of yesterday, men. Pray. Pray. Pray for people to come to Christ. Pray for our neighbors. Pray for our family. Pray for our co-workers. Pray for those that we have opportunity to give, to give the gospel. Because the reality is, well, that's verse 17. Here's why. The reality is, verse 17, God will judge both the righteous and the wicked man for a time, for every matter, and every deed is there because man's going to stand one day before his creator and give account and give account of his relationship or lack of that with the, the creator who who made who made him one writer says concerning verse 17 i think it's a great reminder for us the date has been set every man will have his own day in court before the righteous judge. So I think that our response to these verses and Solomon reminding us of evil in the world, all that's going on, and with many, with so many people that we meet, they say, well, wait a minute, how can God be a, a good or a loving God and allow this to take place? And we have to remember that the point is that there was a fall that took place and corrupted humanity, and we give them the solution to that on a personal level in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is a heaven to be yearned for and a hell to be avoided. Amen?
So, until such time, then, that judgment takes place for all mankind, yet alone you, I want you to listen to the theology of my wife who says, in the meantime, you ought to tend to your own knitting. And your own knitting is, what about your own justice and how you live righteousness and how you stand out as a person who is honest and who is fair and does the right thing in hard circumstances? The right thing in hard circumstances. You know, it's football season, and, and we, uh, a lot of us fired up. College football started yesterday. Uh, the Colts begin their season next week. They're going to make the Super Bowl this year. Correct? Amen? Right? And we get, get, but in the midst of all of that, here's my point. We just love it, don't we? If we love sports, we love it when somebody really surfaces for the Lord and is really the real humble deal for the Lord. And man, they stand out. Kirby will tell you that. Man, do they stand out. I'm not talking about the guy who points to the sky when he makes the touchdown. I'm talking about the person in the interview when they have a loss and still says, I thank God for the privilege too and what the Lord, and they get, get it out there that they love, love the Lord. That is such an encouragement to us when they're committed and we hear that, and we see that in somebody's life. How we are all encouraged by a good testimony. Amen to that. Likewise, when it comes to injustice, we want to tell others how to be made right with a God who's going to deal with all of that one day. And I think it's even appropriate because Jesus taught us how to pray, and he said, thy kingdom come, and we ought to pray for the Lord to come back and take care of this. Amen. So when your heart breaks and you see things of evil in the news and your heart breaks about that, just say, Lord, I thank you that you're going to take care of all of that and even so come, Lord Jesus, right now because you're going to make all things right. And oh my, one guy entitled those verses, the judge is coming and he is, he is coming, is he, is he not? Now look at what happens next in verse 18. In verses 18 through verse 20. One, I got my pages messed up here now. Let me start in verse 17, follow along as I, as I read those. Okay, 17. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time, every matter for every deed is there. And I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has sur- surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they are all have the same breath. There is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from dust. Uh, Genesis 3. All came from dust and all returned to dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast ascends downward to the earth. All of a sudden, he reminds us and he does that throughout Ecclesiastes because there's the, no matter what else, what else is going on in life concerning you, there is a day when it will all come to an end. And so he's, he's conveying the reality of this and the injustice in the world over and over again. It's going to, and, and that in verses 18 through verse 21, from under the sun, he tells us that death is the great equalizer of everything, of both man and both beast. 
And we can look at this and say, wait a minute, he's saying there's, there's no dis- difference between man and beast. Wait a minute, we have the rest of the Bible. And what we've already read, we know there is a difference, correct? But when it comes to the fact that there's a time back in verse 2, a time to give birth and a time to what? It's true of all. It's true of all human life and animal life as well. And thank you for no emails this week concerning my statement about you're not a pet parent, okay? Because there is a difference, and Solomon knows that, and we see that, of course, in the rest of the Scriptures. But he's driving home the reality that this life does and will come to an end, and you don't know when. Now, how does he get from standing before God in verse 17, and then all of a sudden he's saying, you know, both man and beast, they both die. How does he do that? And, and I read a lot concerning that, and wh- one of the things that I think is, is going on with Solomon is, is that, that while man in his unrighteousness and his wickedness and his evil in the world, that there are times, I think he's emphasizing, the reality that man almost behaves like a, like a beast. In fact, there's a sense in which human depravity is such that he does worse than a beast. And in light of all of that, he's saying, and, and he's saying, hey, here it is. There is this great equalizer that it, that it comes to all for an end. For it comes to an end for all. And praise the Lord, you and I have what Solomon didn't possess. We have the full and complete revelation of God that tells us that everything we need to know about life after death and how to be ready for it that Jesus promised, I prepared a place for you, go to prepare for you and come and receive you to myself, and we have the hope of the scriptures. But he's looking at life here just from as is. Koholeth, the preacher, sounds like one of the biblical prophets, crying for justice. This is one of the deepest longings of the human heart and an end to all the unfairness. The particular problem in this case is that even the place of justice is unjust. The very place where people most need to receive justice turns out to be a locus of unfairness. Innocent people are convicted for crimes they've never committed. They were in the wrong place, the wrong time, or maybe the wrong color or the wrong side of town. People lie, cheat, and steal. Sometimes they get away with murder. They have the money to hire better lawyers, lawyers, or they hide behind the structure of some large institution to take advantage of people who are much less fortunate. It is also unfair even worse. There is nothing that can be done. The preacher's frustration is that injustice goes unpunished. When the halls of justice become corridors of corruption, where can righteousness be found? Where can it be found? With God. With God. And as parents, when our children go through things, or even as grandparents, children go, great-grandchildren, grandchildren grandchildren (laughs) go through various things, and they say life isn't fair, they're right. But God is good, and he is fair. And he is fair. And we all know if we got what we deserve, we wouldn't even be here. We'd be separated from God for all eternity already. Amen? So thank you, God, that you are not only just, but that you are merciful and that you are a saving God. So, man's knowledge is truly limited to his current experience and cannot stretch beyond that. No one truly knows what happens beyond the grave because there is no way of knowing for sure. 
I saw a reference the other day. Um, this guy was making uh, a statement of the fact that we know that there's life be- beyond this life because all these people have written about the fact that they died and they came back to life. And so we have assurance of that. And I thought, would you please read your Bible? Amen. Right? This verse is not a comment on the old age question of whether only humans have souls and animals do not, or whether animals go to heaven. I cannot see how a cat would ever go to heaven. Anybody want to agree with me on that? Okay, I'm there. But that's for another day. That is not Solomon's purpose here. He simply wants to expose the fact that we do not have certainty about what happens beyond the grave, so we are no different from animals in that sense. But we do have the rest of God's revelation that we do know what happens. And we can be ready for that. And we know how in God's perfect plan, we start verse 11, made everything appropriate for its time, is that there is a plan of redemption for sinners that they can be forgiven of their sin and have a home in heaven and be assured of it. Is that you today? I pray that it is. So we thank God for that. Yeah, sometimes sometimes it seems almost as if Solomon does get a little cynical, but I think people do that when they see only life and they fail to see God working in their life and in this world. I love Wiersbe, don't you too? mankind's not unique, then we're not important. If we're not important, then life has no meaning. And if life has no meaning, then it's not worth living. But we are important. We are made in his image. Life does have meaning, and life is worth living, and we should be grateful for the life each day that he does give to us. I was riding one time with the... uh, guy that worked at the funeral home in the hearse to the gravesite, and it happened to have been a long ride. In fact, this person, the uh, graveyard that he was going to be buried was actually in Illinois. And so the guy said to me, hey, I, you know, the hearse has to come back, come back. You can go ahead and ride with the guy who was driving the, the, uh, the body there for the burial, and I was to do the burial thing and then come back and I said sure and I remember that particular occasion because the guy was was a talker and he was telling me how he'd worked at the funeral home for all these number of years and death didn't bother him and he's going on about all the situations you know that he was in and and then then he stopped for a moment he said well it doesn't bother me unless I think about my own you talk about teeing up the ball amen and I said yeah that's the big one isn't it what about it you know for you it was a great opportunity for the gospel. Somebody said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) Right? But Solomon just keeps coming back to that. Why? Because you're going to stand before your creator. Get ready. Get ready. So death, yep, great equalizer, man and beast. But last verse of the section, then in verse 22 of chapter 3. Oh, we've got a couple minutes yet. It says, I've seen that nothing is better than for man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. It just seems like he's coming back to that, doesn't it? For what will bring him to see what will occur after him? There he is again. Ah, but what's going to be next? So again, gift, life from the hand of God, 
be grateful and enjoy it. And pray this. Pray, Lord, help me to learn to treasure each day as a gift from your hand and to live wisdom in the time that I have left to live for you. Isn't that a reasonable prayer? Amen? Help me to learn to treasure each day as a gift from your hand, as to live wisdom in the time, time I have left that you've given me to live, to live for you. And then let's remember Psalm 90, 10 through 12. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. You'd almost think that Solomon wrote that, wouldn't you? If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath. Oh, turn in your Bible, Psalm 90, because we've bounced over to Psalm 9 there, I'm quite sure. And that is because sometimes people have trouble, and I don't know why, reading my handwriting. I really think that is an unfair attack. Psalm 90. Psalm 90. I just, just met uh, Rob over here talking with him for a moment. He looked at my notes and said, what is that? So that's writing. Don't you know good writing? Psalm 90. Psalm 90. We've got part of that, but not... Yeah. Oh, it is. It is. It, verse 11 and 12. Thank you. It is right. Why did 11 didn't look familiar? Who understands? Verse 11. Now, wait a minute. And we quickly pass away. We fly away. Verse 11. Who understands the power of your anger? Yeah, it is. It's a little different, though, isn't it? Your wrath is as great as the fear that is, is your due. And then verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So much time that we, we have Sorry I tacked Lydia for getting that messed up and people up there. So E.M. Bounds. Dave, you mentioned E.M. Bounds yesterday. We'll close with this. Why don't you read it with me? Why should I fear tomorrow? The Lord directs my way. Why should I trouble borrow? I live but for today. Whenever I am weary, in God I find my rest. And when my path seems dreary, I know it's for the best. Is that not good? Amen. Is that not our prayer? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder from your word that our days are numbered, our time is to be treasured and to be thankful for it and to be used to redeem the time that we have. We're stewardships of it. And we thank you that we know what we're here for and the purpose that we have to worship you, as we're going to do in just a few moments as the church, but to worship you in our work, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our, uh, as, as young people, in the way school and relationships and all that we do, if we claim Christ, we want to do this to, your, to pleasing you, to your glory, for your honor. And then that we thank you that as we go through this brief time, this brief segment of time that we are reminded of in this, in this chapter that we move from time to eternity in Christ and all the blessings that's going to be ours when we don't even know, won't even know the hardships that we 
know and the wickedness and evil that we see in this world. It will come to an end. And so I do pray this morning, even so come Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, help us to be faithful to you. In Christ's name I pray. And everybody said, amen.